From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Well, welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project. This is the podcast where we discuss, talk about, banter about different ideas with regard to how to apply capitalism. Capitalism being the only socioeconomic system that is moral. That's a statement we make and we always aim to give evidence for that and different examples and applications. Now today, Mitch, you had an idea of just discussing uh, sources, mainly books, I think, books on liberty, books on capitalism, maybe books on politics and and economics as well. But uh, let's have you start it off that way. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. I'm calling this segment the building books of liberty. You see what I did there? I like that. Not building blocks, but building books of liberty. (laughs) That's right. And I think what prompted this idea for me, I know when I was younger, I was really into politics, not just the ideas of, you know, capitalism and and things that I talk about a lot now, but, you know, the nitty-gritty actual politics, Republicans versus Democrats, and I used to read all these very political books. And now, you know, you look online, you look on Amazon when you're getting a book, you look on Audible, whatever, at Barnes & Noble— And there's just crap coming out every single day on modern political stuff going on. You know, oh my gosh, the Democrats hate the Republicans, the Republicans hate the Democrats, this is why America's dying, this is why America's thriving, this is why the rest of the world sucks, this is why they're better. I mean, you would just be like inundated in crap. But it's very seductive because you see things and you say, oh, I think that might satisfy my craving to be right. And I think that (laughs) if I read this book, it'll give me some ammunition to help convince myself that I'm right. And it's so seductive to pick up. Well, so is that your standard for calling it either good or crap? Uh, No, I don't think so, but I think that's part of it. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I started getting away from those books is because I realized in reading them, I didn't get much out of it. Yeah. And... I wanted to talk about what I call lasting books. I don't know that I have a definition of lasting books, other than I think they're about more than just day-to-day political mudslinging or, you know, some journalist comes out, the journalist who was able to write as quickly as possible and get a book out about the most recent big event that's happened in the world. But I'm talking about books that are talking about something deeper, you know, What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to live a good life? What are some of the books that have actually laid an ideological framework for what we talk about on this podcast? What are books you can actually read to make you think critically? Maybe you disagree with it. Maybe you agree with it. But what are books that help you build a framework in your mind for analyzation or analyzing information? Absolutely. And so that's that was the basis of this. And I wanted to talk about some books, some that I have read all the way through, others that I've just read bits and pieces of. I won't lie and say I've read through all of these yeah. cover to cover, but books that have been either uh, very formative for me or just in general books that I think have been formative for the liberty movement. I don't intend this to be an exhaustive list. So if you have a favorite book that you don't hear, 
I didn't leave it off out of spite or something, but <laughs> these are just books that came to mind for me. So you've got a number that you want to talk about. Are these all books that you would recommend people read? I would recommend everybody read at least parts of them. Mm-hmm. There are some, I'll mention these, that I think, you know, you read some excerpts of and you're probably pretty good to yeah, go. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have for years been, you know, steeped in this idea of capitalism being the only moral system. I've sort of tried to develop a reading list myself that I recommend. A lot of people will ask me, okay, well, uh, your ideas are interesting. Maybe they agree or don't agree with me, but they're like, hey, I never heard that perspective. I've never heard, first of all, anyone use the word moral connected to capitalism. That's even just usually blows people away. Like, what do you mean? I understand capitalism We got is a necessary evil. We've got to have commerce. We've got to have free trade. You know, to some degree or another, we need to have regulation. They talk about all that, but they're like, Wait, you mean it's a? You're saying that it's a moral system, and and that usually sparks people's interest. And oftentimes they'll be like, "Well, I want more. Tell me more. Where did you get these ideas? What what should I read?" So I think this is a great idea for a podcast. Well, and, and I think that's a good point too, Mike, is I want to talk about some of the books that have been influential for me, or that I think are influential, and then want to hear from you, kind of what's on your list Absolutely. as well. Yeah, you bet. So. I talked a little bit about why I get frustrated seeing all of the just political mudslinging books coming out. Seriously, every day something new is coming out. And, you know, some of the funniest ones I've seen, Mark Levin just put out a book in the past year called The Democrat Party Hates America. I mean, talk about just baiting people to try to... Clickbait for the right. Exactly. Clickbait. Read bait, I guess, in this case. Yeah. I mean, come on. You think you're going to get anything out of reading that book? Now, have you read or looked at that one? I've looked at it. I have now. I will say, I have not read that cover to cover. Yeah, and I and I actually think. I mean, I was talking to my brother about Mark Levin. This is a little bit of a side story, but I mean, just a, a few weeks ago, and I think the guy's pretty bright. I mean, I actually think he makes some good ana- analysis on the current state of affairs of state of politics in America, as well as oftentimes our judicial system. But I can't stand to listen to him. He's a yeller. He just constantly, you know, just. It's like outrage machine button. It is, especially during the Trump years. Yeah. Uh, before the Trump years, I thought he was really good. Well, there's a lot of people like that, right? They, they are. They, they were pretty good before the Trump years. And what the hell happened right. to them? Well, then they knew where the money was and what would get people outraged and get more viewership. Yeah. So I understand it. I mean, he's not the only one yeah. playing this game. Yep. But yeah, you're right. It, it is funny. He's got like this formula where he starts talking really softly like this. And then he goes up really loud. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is happening. And then he starts talking really softly once again to really draw you <laughs> You've in. You've got his technique down. That it was... And oh my gosh, I, you need to get really mad about this. But I'm going to talk really softly again. Our producer's cracking up. You've got him down. I mean, but it's ridiculous, right? Yep. So anyway, I guess I'm not saying never read his book, The Democrat Party Hates America. I'm just saying there's other books to read before that is what I'm going to try to convince you. Yeah. And, you know, some of the others. Actually, back in, in my very political days, I, I read some Ann Coulter books. And I will say, I think she's smart and I think she's funny. But over time, I just realized I think she's toxic, and I really just don't think she moves the ball forward in the actual cause of liberty. I would agree with you on all counts there. I mean, she's smart. She's a good commentator oftentimes, but but uh, I wouldn't call her evil or anything, but I think she uh, she's motivated by the wrong reasons. And, and philosophically, I don't think she really gets what liberty or what freedom means. No. So I, th- I agree with you on both those counts. But, you know, she, of course, has written some classics recently, such as Adios America, the left's plan to turn our country into a third world hellhole. 
which I mean, it's kind of funny, right? But what I think is insidious about that is that she's using some kind of racial undertone, right? Like, oh, we're going to get taken over by Mexicans. And that's been her thing for a while. But talk about, you know, extreme right wing read baiting, right? That's one of the reasons why I really can't stand her anymore. And then, of course, she also had the in Trump we trust e pluribus awesome. And I can't imagine more than two people bought that book. But then, of course, she comes out and says, oh, she didn't actually like Trump because he was too easy on immigration or something. So, And look, there are all kinds of examples. I've used a lot of people on the right, but... You know, even Obama's The Audacity of Hope, he wrote that before he ran for president. And that was, of course, in the 2008 campaign. Everybody's like, hope and change, hope and change, you know. That book's not going to change your life. But in my mind, there's some really thought-provoking books. And and I think I would be remiss if I I didn't start off talking about, in terms of real classic of liberty, The Wealth of Nations Mm -hmm. by Adam Smith. I think we've all heard about it. And and I will, full disclosure on this, I have not read this cover to cover. I've read excerpts of it. But I do think that in terms of laying an ideological groundwork for a lot of the stuff we talk about today, Adam Smith did a lot of the legwork on helping move the world away from what was then called mercantilism, you know, nation states hoarding gold, because the idea is you hoard gold, you become richer relative to your neighbors. And what Adam Smith was able to do in 1776, by the way, so a very important year in world history, I think, for several reasons. But what what Adam Smith starts talking about in this book is free markets. And I think that laid the foundation for so many. A lot of other people have been able to stand on Adam Smith's shoulders. I couldn't agree with you more. And this gives me an opportunity to plug a prior... uh, podcast episode of ours where I interviewed Amon Butler, who was the founder of the Adam Smith Society in uh, in London. Um, and he's actually someone who's written a lot about Adam Smith. So, so if someone doesn't want to slog all the way through Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, then they should read Amon Butler, you know, and, and get yeah. a, a pretty good dose of Adam Smith. But you're exactly right. I mean, it, what's one of the things I wanted to point out, because you talked about lots of political books, and now, you know, you're, you're talking about Wealth of Nations. And people think of Adam Smith as an economist. He didn't think of himself that way. In fact, the whole idea of economics as a discipline wasn't really there until Adam Smith, right? Well, no, and and he kind of considered himself uh, kind of more of like this social philosopher. Yeah, he was I, a moral theorist. And I think his favorite book he wrote was a moral a theory on moral sentiments. Exactly. Which is funny because that's not the book that's actually made him famous over time. Well, um, and the other point about that is that these uh, kind of click, read, read, click, whatever we said, these these pl- this plethora of books that are just cranked out for a semi-bankrupt political culture that we have right now, just trying to capitalize on the outrage, yeah. don't ever really make the connection that I think you're talking about between economics and politics and uh, broader philosophy, ethics. And that connection to Adam Smith is about ethics. I mean, he's actually trying to look about the world and say, what is ethical behavior? So I, this is my plug for I, I know sometimes when we put together a podcast outline, Mitch, you'll have, you'll have a little spot in there where you go, okay, this is the point where Mike waxes philosophical. Oh, now, don't give up our secrets, Mike. <laughs> I take that both positively and a little bit as a criticism because— it means that I sometimes do too much abstraction. You know, I'm talking about the abstract and philosophical stuff versus going, no, let's, let's apply this to a real story, a real world example. And that's where you oftentimes you know, make sure I do that. But my point is that there's a whole connection to, you know, if you're talking about books that last, 
you know, a timeless book, a principled yeah. book. And I think that's what I'm getting at here is that what are timeless books? Yeah. 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 So I, I absolutely agree. Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith, I mean, he's an author who is the father of economics as a study, and people should be familiar with his works. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I said, I have not read the entire book. I don't know that you need to read the entire book unless you want to, in which case, knock yourself out. But at least be familiar with it, even if it's just reading through the Wikipedia page, honestly. But just become familiar with what he said because, and this is something that's really interesting as well, Marxists have actually seized upon some part of Adam Smith's work in terms of the labor theory of value. And so it is an interesting dichotomy that Adam Smith laid the groundwork for, you know, free markets and everything we talk about here, but also did provide ammunition for people who believe in the antithesis of what we talk about here. Well, and that's the thing is that that idea of studying economic behavior, studying people, how they behave in the real world trying to better themselves is an evolutionary thing. It's, it's something, you know, just like all schools, all sciences, all fields of academic study are, you build upon what prior knowledge. And, and there wasn't really the concrete, obvious examples that we see today of wealth coming from ingenuity, human, the human mind, as I say, you know, I, I continually say that it's the human mind that creates all value for humans. Human mind is the source of all wealth. Out of context, that's maybe a, a, just a too abstract of a statement. But when you realize that people didn't have examples like they do today, even a really clear thinker like Adam Smith said, well, yeah, it's people working, you know, doing manual physical work that creates wealth. Yeah. Not really recognizing the role of human problem solving. Right. Explicitly. Right. And so, you know, he... he he was the source of the labor theory of value, and you're absolutely right that, that uh, Karl Marx uh, jumped on that and turned that into a whole religion, so to speak, and we haven't gotten rid of that since. I mean, there's, there's still most economists haven't really recognized the role of intellectual property, of, and, and there, are, there are a whole swath of our society who consider themselves to be freedom lovers and part of the liberty movement who don't actually understand, in my view at least, the role of the human mind in creating value. And that's why you read some of these books we're going to talk about, right? That's right. So the next book that I think actually is great to read, I would highly recommend it. It's short. It's under 100 pages. It's called The Law. And this is very popular amongst libertarians in particular. It's by Frederick Bastiat, a Frenchman. He published it in 1850. And as I said, it's, it's concise, but it's really a good primer on discussing the protection of individual rights. And Bastiat also gets into, into what at the time was kind of a novel concept, this idea of legalized plunder, <laughs> that citizens get together and through their representatives of government, through legislation, <laughs> they pass these laws, which then take takes property from others. And so, you know, it's basically piracy, but it's legalized piracy, right? And we've talked about that. You've talked a lot about that on this show, Mike, about how just because the government has the power to do something, you know, doesn't make it right. Yeah, that's the modern mixed economy, whether it's in the U.S. or across Western Europe. I mean, mixed economies are basically have this ideal of uh, democracies, right? People being able to vote. 
on too many things in my view. And, and basically, if you can have a majority of people vote to plunder, then that's what you've got. And you don't call it plunder. You don't. You just say, hey, this is just a system. This is how we solve problems. We vote on stuff. And they don't want to call it voting on taking other people's stuff. But it's because they don't ever explicitly say, you know, you have property rights and, and mean that in a serious way. Well, yeah. And I think psychologically it's easier, right? Like I wouldn't show up to your, your house one day, Mike, and say, I'm going to take 24% of your income um, because I want to build some libraries and things like that. I uh, will just deduct it from your paycheck and uh, it will be good. Right. Well, and they, and they say, well, we have this collective idea of the wisdom of us as a group. We get a vote on Majoritarianism is what, what basically rules most people's modern political thinking is, well, we count noses and, and you know, the majority should win. Not realizing that the founders set up the entire structure of the Constitution to protect the individual from the mob like that or from from uh, a tyrannical government, but also from a majority of its fellow citizens. Just because a majority of people vote for something doesn't make it right. That's exactly right. We've talked about that many times. So anyway, The Law by Bastiat, you can read it in an afternoon, if not (laughs) in an hour. Highly recommended. Now, he's got another one I would recommend. uh, It's called Economic Sophisms. Yeah, and I have not read that. And it's basically, it's a short book uh, that he's basically going through and identifying similar kinds of things, legalized plunder, other kinds of examples, you know, where the the broken window fallacy, those kinds of things of saying where people get kind of confused about economic issues. So I just want to make a plug for uh, Bastiat that way. Okay, there we go. So another one to check out. Now, the next book on my list, it's it's a two for one. It was written as two separate books, but now it's sold together as one book. It's Man, Economy, and State. And then the the second part is Power and Market. And this is by an economist named Murray Rothbard. He published Man, Economy, and State in 1962, and then he published Power and Market in 1970. But as I said, they're sold together now. I have read this cover to cover a couple years ago. I don't recommend you read this cover to cover. Not because it's a horrible book, but because it's going to take you a really long time. But generally, you're, you're positive on, on Rothbard and, and these concepts? I'm positive on um, parts of Rothbard. I want to talk about that actually a little bit. So Rothbard was basically an anarcho-capitalist. So I am not an anarcho-capitalist. Basically, what it means to be an anarcho-capitalist is that there is no role, legitimate role for government. Right. And through capitalism, society will function. Right. And I don't agree with that. But what I do like about this, especially the first part, man, economy, and state, Rothbard takes this basically just this foundational journey of what is economics, what does trade between two individuals look like? And then slowly over the course of many hundreds of pages expands that out into, let's talk about monopolies. Let's talk about trade between nations. So intellectually, it's kind of a fun exercise to see, you know, how the idea of free trade between people, how those principles can be extended out into the broadest uh, terms. And power and market, the second part of the book, I like it in a way that it challenged me. And I think it would challenge everybody because that is really when he starts getting into there is no proper role of government at all, yeah. which even after reading it, I still disagree with it. Yeah, and I, I would say for the reasons you're talking about, I would put a big asterisk by Rothbard and his works 
I mean, you're right in the sense that he does a really good job of concrete illustrating all of the ways that mutual voluntary trade, a free society, can solve lots of problems that people think they need a government for. But on the other hand, this whole idea of anarcho-capitalism and the modern, you know, he's the one who really gave birth to, in one sense, the modern libertarian movement, the modern libertarian party, in my view. And most of the people who are in that libertarian movement, I think, are misguided with regard to that particular issue of uh, not understanding the role of government and the role of rights. Yes. So I would, I would put a, you know, a big block of salt or an asterisk next to the Rothbard. Yeah, no, I would too. But the reason why I recommend it is, is for the, what you were just talking about, which is foundational concepts of free trade. But I thought Rothbard did a good job talking about that. And in power and market, it will challenge you because he starts talking about why the state has no legitimate reason to have a military. Yeah. And I disagreed on that part, but it forces you to think. Yep. And I really appreciated that because he goes through everything very, very logically. So again, I would say don't read the whole thing. I mean, it will take you months to read this. It took me months to read this. Well, but, I wouldn't discourage people from reading these. I mean, if they want to read Adam Smith, I mean, it depends on their interest. Yes. Like you say, I mean, the thing is that if they want to arm themselves a little bit in the sort of canon that we're talking about here, you know, the, the narrower group of books that really have had a powerful influence on liberty thinking and the liberty movement, uh, to whatever degree they are interested, but they can they can kind of expose themselves in excerpts or, like you said, some cliff notes or, or, or yeah. something like that. Well, no, that's a good point. I don't want to discourage you from reading any of these, but yeah, maybe Spark Notes this one if you want to just learn a little bit about it, but maybe read some of the other slightly shorter books that aren't 1,500 pages. Yep. So next one, this is one of my favorites. You've got to read it, I think, more than any of the others. I think you've got to read it cover to cover. Uh, Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman, one of my favorite economists. He first published it in 1962, but it went through many revisions. Milton Friedman lived a long time after it was published, so he was able to go back and make, you know, it's one of those books that has like 13 introductions, you know, <laughs> because each time he goes back and revises it, he introduces it in a different way. But um, anyway, this is the book that actually takes concrete, real-life examples and says, here's a problem in our world, here's how we can make a real-world, free-market-oriented solution to deal with this. And he talks about, you know, reigning in government, government expenditures, eliminating tariffs. Now, I know a lot of hardcore libertarians have a problem with Milton Friedman, uh, mostly because he was not a fan of the Federal Reserve, but he advocated, uh, instead of having basically a board, just start moving interest rates up by... 25 basis points up or down. Friedman said, just replace the Federal Reserve with a computer. That would just increase the money supply like 3 to 5% every year. A lot of libertarians really despise that. And uh, if you despise that, I hear you. Milton Friedman wasn't perfect. He was just close to perfect. Yeah, I, I might say I, I, I am definitely uh, a fan of Milton Friedman. Uh, although... The kind of real-world th things that you talk about where he was trying to deal with the existence of the Fed and what, what the purpose is. I mean, there, there's lots of compromises that Milton Friedman made in the political context that I think were errors. I mean, one of the most famous ones is, you know, his advocacy for uh, tax withholding. You know, yeah. This was during the war, and, 
And he was actually an employee. He was an economist, uh, a young economist in the, I think, the Roosevelt administration. Maybe it was where he he was the one, one of the primary people advocating for mandatory withholding through your employer for taxes. Before that, you just you, you just wrote a, tra- a check yeah. directly to the IRS. Well, we and, all make mistakes, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a big one. That's a biggie. <laughs> um, now, I, I used to teach uh, his book, uh, Free to Choose, and there's a yes. whole TV series that he does that I would recommend people do. You know, there, there's lots of. I mean, one of the best things about Milton Friedman is is seeing him on video and and not just reading him, but seeing his benevolent spirit. I mean, oh, he's incredibly engaging. Yeah, he's a great a great lecturer and a great person to see a Q and A session with. You know, people who are trying to learn about freedom and, and economics and and challenging him. He's he's really really good to listen to and see how he answers questions. So I I would definitely agree with. You know, Milton Friedman is being someone you, you should be familiar with. Yeah, and I think to your point, Mike, it's just he was a real economist offering real solutions. Yep. So in some ways, he was kind of the opposite of Murray Rothbard. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, highly recommended. The last one that I, I think it is slowly becoming a classic, but it's a pretty recent book. It's called The Mystery of Capital. It's by a, a guy named Hernando de Soto. as uh, published in 2000. This is a really tremendous book that explores why capitalism has worked in some parts of the world, in some countries, and it just cannot take root in other places. And what he really starts getting into is why it is so important for the culture of that country to protect individual property rights. So societies that are willing to protect property rights, you know, protect people's businesses, the things they own, the things they're selling, you know, blah, blah, blah. Turns out that's a fundamental building block of capitalism. But I just think that Hernando de Soto presents the information in a way that makes it easy to understand. And and you kind of think after reading it, what are we doing? We, we just need to help other countries protect property rights here. So anyway, another book that I think is actually um, not just theoretical, but has real-world implications. So that that would be the last one that I would recommend people do read. Well, I would definitely concur with you. I actually had the opportunity a long time ago to hear uh, DeSoto uh, lecture on economics, and he was in, almost as engaging and as, uh, you know, uh, had that same sort of spirit that uh, uh, Milton Friedman has. Um, so that was great listening to him, and I would recommend his books. I've got a lot, a lot more books than that, Mitch. I've got a whole long list of them, and I'll go through them real quickly. Maybe we'll need to do a follow-up session because I'm just going to rattle through these books and tell people why I think they should read them. Now, I, I think you can't have a canon, a list of recommended reading without Atlas Shrugged, without on Ayn Rand. I think Ayn Rand actually is revolutionary in the way her thinking was in terms of connecting politics, economics, and her moral theory. Now, she uh, built on the, the works of you know, Aristotle first and all, all the, the great thinkers, the great liberal, liberal in the classical sense, and enlightenment thinkers throughout history. But she added something different from a moral perspective, being able to show how egoism individualism, a person looking out for their self-interest. She wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness, which I would recommend as well, but certainly Atlas Shrugged. Uh, you know, Atlas, uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which is sort of a condensed nonfiction version of Atlas Shrugged. Uh, I would recommend Philosophy Who Needs It, 
That's a book of essays. At least the title essay, people should read that. It was an address given to West Point. Um, it's basically selling the idea of philosophy in the first place, not even going necessarily into economics, uh, but certainly the, the foundation of thinking clearly is examined in that uh, essay. Henry Hazlitt, uh, Economics in One Lesson, uh, I definitely think that's a, a, a very good primer uh, and lots of concrete examples. I would also recommend people read The Conquest of Poverty by Henry Hazlitt, another great case for why capitalism is essential. Having freedom, property rights, the protection of property rights is the solution to pro poverty. I would recommend my friend and associate, Yaron Brook. He has a number of books. I think Equal is Unfair is almost required reading today because of the whole inequality argument that's used like such a guilt monger, you know, uh, something that uh, people need to be able to deal with that issue of inequality. Uh, he wrote another book called Free Market Revolution that I thought was great. He and, I should say, Don Watkins, his co-author. And Don wrote a, uh, a book I would put on the list as well that people are not necessarily familiar with. And it's very narrow, but he, the book is called Roosevelt Care. You know, it, it was re in response to Obamacare because you had all these people on the right saying, you know, we don't want Obamacare and that's socialized medicine, but not realizing they have accepted socialized retirement for the last, you know, 100 and some years. Uh, so Roosevelt Care, subtitled, How Social Security is Sabotaging the Land of Self-Reliance. Uh, I would definitely recommend that by Don Watkins. You mentioned Bastiat. I would, in that category of Bastiat and Milton Friedman, you have to put people like Ludwig von Mises, Human Action. I mean, the title itself is basically explaining he's, in a sense, a social scientist observing human behavior just like Adam Smith did, but in a much more sophisticated way more recently. But Ludwig von Mises is probably one of the best economists that we've ever seen. Unfortunately, there are lots of people who, who've adopted some of his economics, but also married them to Rothbard in that whole anarcho-capitalist anarcho movement. I don't think von Mises would have been an anarchist at all. He wrote a book, a polemical book called The Anti-Capitalist Mentality, which he, you know, he's exploring how people accept some of these anti-capitalist uh, arguments so easily. I would put Julian Simon on the list. I don't know if you're familiar with Julian Simon. No, the, I'm not. The Ultimate Resource. Julian okay. Simon's one of my inspirations for using that term, the mind being the source of wealth. Okay. He died recently uh, in the last, I think, 10 or 15 years but he co-wrote some stuff with Stephen Moore. I don't know if you're a fan of Stephen Moore. Um, yeah, I like Stephen Moore. But uh, they wrote some really good stuff. Not long uh, book form, even just some essays uh, about how wonderful the world is because of free markets and capitalism today. And there's a number of people who've really taken that, that mantle and moved it forward even more than they have. But Julian Simon is someone you should look up. A book that I would almost call required reading for someone who wants to understand capitalism and the history of capitalism is The Myth of the Robber Barons. Yes, that's a Folsom. great book. Burton Folsom is a, uh, I don't know if he's still teaching at uh, uh, Hillsdale, but he's a wonderful author. And I, my understanding, I've never heard him actually give a lecture, but I've heard he's a really good lecturer as well. But The Myth of the Robber Barons basically breaks down how they, they meaning the, quote, America's robber barons uh, you know, during the, quote, gilded age of capitalism, uh, Wild West capitalism, you know, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the, you know, the, the, the people who are really built this country, um, how they've been vilified 
by the left mostly, uh, but by our whole culture over the last hundred years to turn them into monsters, um, and and it's unfair to them. And and the the idea of a robber baron itself is just an anti concept that should be challenged. And Burton does a great job of it. But he does actually break the robber baron quote unquote into two classes, and he says there actually was. Uh, a group that he calls political entrepreneurs who actually do, do deserve criticism. Absolutely. And then he says there's the, you know, the true, I think he calls them like business entrepreneurs uh, that are more in the spirit of what you were talking about. Yep. So that's required. Um, we mentioned Friedman. Uh, I would say, now this is one of those where, th- this is an author who I have met personally and uh, read only excerpts. I haven't read all of her stuff, but I, the stuff I've read and the times I've heard her, uh, I would highly recommend. Uh, Deidre McCloskey, uh, she wrote a couple books, one called Bourgeois Dignity, Bourgeois Equality as well. And she is probably today one of the best historians of economic progress uh, in a wide scoping, you know, wide scale type of look at history. I would highly recommend at least being familiar with uh, McCloskey. And, and probably one of the foremost scholars today on Adam Smith. Yep, that's right. That's right. We've left out uh, Friedrich Hayek, Road, Road to Serfdom, oh, yeah. uh, The Fatal Conceit, Socialism and War. I'm a member of the Montpelier Society, which was started by Hayek, Friedman, and von Mises. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of Hayek, although I think sometimes the libertarians use some of his, his writings to support what they get from Rothbard. So th- that's my take on it a little well, bit. Well, you know what Friedman said about Hayek? <laughs> he said he was an excellent political philosopher and a bad economist. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there, there are people who make that case. I mean, uh, uh, Hayek is definitely someone people should be familiar with and read. Uh, and I, I think he is one of the foundational people uh, in economics and social observation uh, in this liberty movement. A couple of people that are maybe less um, familiar maybe to the audience that I would add, uh, and I'm getting down to it here, I would add a book. Uh, this is a history book. It's more philosophical. The book is called The Cave and the Light, and it's really about the dual ideas, the conflicting ideas between Plato and Aristotle down through history. I was going to say, that sounds like The Republic. It is. By Plato, yeah. yeah. The Cave is the Republic, the Light is Aristotle, and, and he's, he's showing. And now, he does show his hand, and I probably show my hand. I mentioned Ayn Rand and Aristotle, her, her, you know, Aristotle being an influence on her. I mean, Arthur Herman, the author of The Cave and the Light, gives lots of historical examples of those two philosophers having an impact on many, many different cultures throughout the world, both positive and negative, and he comes out in favor of Aristotle. That's the, that's the punchline, uh, not to ruin the book for you, but uh, um, that's something I think people should read because it's a great history book, and, and it gives lots of evidence about that duel. One book I cannot recommend enough about the... Uh, politics in America and the whole development of the American founders and their mindset uh, is Brad Thompson. Brad Thompson runs the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, which is appropriate. Uh, He's an incredible intellectual. I've heard him give lots of presentations. I've read all of his books. But the one that I would highly recommend, well, two of them I would put on this list. Uh, one very narrow one about the American uh, Revolution. One's called The American Revolutionary Mind, and he, he actually does the sort of historical examination of the culture and the people who lead up to the founders and how they, how they shaped the ideas that gave birth to this great nation. 
He also wrote, an, as I said, a narrow book, uh, a number of different books, but one I would recommend people read, it, especially in today's context and with my criticism constantly of our educational system. Brad wrote a book called Freedom and School Choice in American Education, and he is someone you should read. You can follow him on, uh, there's a podcast and uh, a newsletter he writes called uh, Redneck Intellectual, and you'll often hear stuff about school choice and the horrors of government schools. And lastly, I would recommend people read Steven Pinker. He's considered to be sort of on the left politically, but I would re- definitely recommend him generally, and I would uh, recommend people read a book called Enlightenment Now. And I think that's a good one to end on because all these ideas, if we're trying to create a reading list, a, you know, a required reading list for the liberty movement or a canon, so to speak, of resources people could go to, not, you know, again, clickbait, click read, uh, but things that are principles, deep intellectual foundations for the argument for people being free and an individualist society, those are born really in the Enlightenment. And Steven Pinker does a good job of that. Even though I think he would advocate for some much more government intrusion than I would, he's giving the case, of, and, and it's a positive case, of how cultures in general have really improved since the Enlightenment and because of the Enlightenment. And wherever you've had the Enlightenment have an impact. Now, you know, we've have we certainly have pockets all over the world that have less. Uh, you know, they're 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 needing their own uh, reform reformation and enlightenment. But uh, enlightenment now is a, another book I would recommend. Well, Mike, I think we've got people a reading list for like the next eighteen years, <laughs> so we should probably stop while we're ahead. I think that's right, and I think we should uh, end on that note. Um, maybe come back and uh, do amendments and say, well, here's a book I forgot, or you know, there may be an article or two or, or something that people should read, uh, and we maybe will uh, do a, a second edition of this recommended reading list, of the canon for the liberty movement, or as you put, the building books of liberty. That's right, that's right. Thank you for listening to the Defenders of Capitalism podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed that. Hopefully you've gotten some good resources for your own edification. We'd be interested in your feedback. And absolutely, please share this podcast. We want to get more a wider audience and uh, more people listening to us and to have the impact that we're looking for to be able to have the Army for Freedom growing and more people have an understanding of the moral case for capitalism. Thank you. This is Mike Williams and Mitch Whitus signing off for the Defenders of Capitalism. Yeah.